1 Peter chapter 5. If you want to grab the Pew Bible in front of you, that's page 1016. Getting deep into the Word. We're continuing our study of Christ's church this week. This is what the Apostle Peter tells to the churches he writes to. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we ask your help this morning as we look to your word. We're reminded of the of our own humanity this morning, of our own need for you as our shepherd to guide us. And we thank you that you do. We pray as we look to your word this morning, we would see everywhere that you're doing this. That that our hearts would be built up this morning. We'd be excited to see your glory and your plan and your, your providence in providing for us. Give us eyes to see. Christ's name, Amen. When we lived in in Washington, I don't know if you if you knew with us. I'm the pastor here, and I've been here a year. And we moved here from Washington State. And when we lived in Washington State, there was a creek that ran beside our house. And and the kids and I made it our mission to find where that creek came from. We wanted to find its source. Little geographers. And so on the map that we looked at, it looked like the creek started at the, at the base of this horseshoe-shaped mountain. So one summer, my brother was in town, and Elias and Jillian in Georgia, we hiked up the mountain to where we thought the creek would be. But we saw kind of where it might have originated, and it was just too thick, too many brambles and, and bushes to get down into it. And so the next summer, we tried it again. But this time... The whole family came, and rather than going up the mountain to try to come at the creek from the the high side, we thought, well, we'll just walk through the creek and find its source that way. Again, we wanted to to see how far upstream we could make it, but again, the, the brush was too thick, and we couldn't make it to the source. Well, that's kind of a side story, but this morning, we're kind of going to do something very similar to that as a church. We're going to look for the source, the headwaters of pastors in God's word. By God's grace, his word is a lot easier to navigate than that overgrown creek bed was. 
Um, so this fits, if you're wondering how does this fit with what we've been doing. For, for the last month, we've been looking to God's word to seek out his design for the church. The first two weeks, we looked at how important membership is to the life of the church. The last two weeks, we saw from Acts and 1 Timothy the importance of deacons, and what their role in the church is. And most churches have pastors, don't they? And so we're going to be looking to that. But before we get too far into that, we're just going to take a step back and ask, why? Why do churches have pastors? Why do we need pastors? And where do they come from? The answer is not seminary. They come from somewhere else. So in that passage we read in 1 Peter, you probably noticed that pastors are shepherds. And that, that word shepherds is going to be key to our investigation this morning. What we're going to do is walk through God's word from the very beginning all the way to the very end. I hope you brought your lunch. Okay. It's, going to, it's, going to, it's going to be a while. That, that shepherd theme, as you look through God's word, it comes up more than a hundred times. Over and over and over again, you see this shepherd theme. It's like this bright thread, probably one of the brightest threads woven through the tapestry of God's redemptive story. But we're not going to look at all of them. We're just going to look at the the big ones, the really important ones, the, the parts of the story that help move the rest of the story along. From the very beginning, the Spirit has dropped these hints to us, for us, that shepherds would be important to God. So if you'll travel back with me to Genesis chapter 3, I would recommend you not flip through your Bibles. I've tried to get as much as we could on the screen. Here's what I will say, though. If there's a passage that you want to study more deeply, and you think, well, I don't know if he's getting that right, write it down and then go read that passage yourself later on today. We'll be here too long if we try to read them all. So we're, we're here in Genesis 3. We're right after the disobedience of Adam and his wife in the garden. is what we usually call the fall. And then here at the end of Genesis 3, God doles out these consequences to the man and the woman and the serpent. He first addresses the serpent, the, the instigator of what went down. And really, this is the part I want us to see. Genesis 3, verses 14 through 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, in dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Look carefully at verse 15. God says he's going to introduce enmity. Right, this, this strife or battling between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And if you keep reading in Genesis, right after this, Cain and Abel are born. Adam and Eve get pregnant. They have their firstborn son, Cain. He's a worker of the ground. And the secondborn son, Abel, look at Genesis 4.2. He's a keeper of the sheep. He's our first shepherd. Okay? He's a shepherd. Both of the boys make a sacrifice to God, if you know the story. Each from what he has, the Lord favors Abel's sacrifice over Cain's. Cain gets upset. And he eventually kills his brother. And as it turns out, even though Cain was born of Eve, 
Scripture later reveals to us in 1 John that Cain was actually of the evil one. He's the offspring of the serpent. Abel, meanwhile, is the offspring of the woman. And so right there, immediately following God's pronouncement of what would happen, that there would be enmity between these two offspring, it happens as God said it would. The offspring of the serpent kills the offspring of the woman. Or, to put it another way, the shepherd, with the sacrifice that pleased God, is killed by the seed of the serpent. Okay? Hold on to that. And as you keep going through Genesis, God calls Abram. Calls Abram to be the father of his people. Abram is set apart as the one through whom God would bring an offspring who would bless the earth. In Genesis 12 and 13, you might know this, but we find out that Abram, Abraham, is a shepherd. He's a keeper of flocks. His son, the child of the promise to Abraham, was Isaac. From Isaac would come two more sons, Esau and Jacob. And as it turns out, Jacob, the younger of the twins, is the son that the promise to Abraham would go through. So just tracking with me through the Old Testament. And it also happens that Jacob is what? He's a shepherd. And he's not, Jacob's not just any shepherd. He's like FFA champion shepherd, right? Blue ribbon, purple jacket. His skill in shepherding so frustrated and embarrassed his father-in-law that he has to part ways with him, never to see him again. Now Jacob, who was given the name Israel by God, had 12 sons. You following with me through the patriarchs, through the lineage? One of those sons is Joseph. We don't have time for the entire Joseph story, but when Jacob is finally reunited with this long-lost son, Joseph, he gives Joseph this special blessing. And it's in that blessing that Jacob reveals something that is of interest to us. He tells us that God is a shepherd. Look with me. Genesis 48, 15. Though Joseph, or Jacob blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. He's about to give the blessing, but this is how he introduces who God is. He's his shepherd. Jacob, the shepherd, realizes that God has been his shepherd. God has been leading him and protecting him from day one, and Jacob finally gets it. And if you read his story, Jacob getting it is a really big deal. Because for most of his life, Jacob doesn't get it. He's a liar. He's a cheat. He's a thief. But God has been his shepherd, and he's brought Jacob to this point of, of faith. And here in Genesis 48 is the first place in all of Scripture where God is revealed to be a shepherd to his people. And that's going to be important. Fast forward a number of generations. God's people are now in Egypt and they're in slavery, and now we're in the book of Exodus. Right? And God has already planned in his sovereign will to set aside Moses to be the one who would provide for his people. And what's interesting about the story of Moses is that Moses isn't born a shepherd. This is new. He's not like Abraham and Jacob. As a part of God's plan of redemption, Moses is born as a slave. And he's adopted into the house of the king, Pharaoh, and he's raised as Egyptian royalty. So before God uses Moses to deliver his people, do you know what he does? He does. 
he teaches him to shepherd. He takes him out of Egypt, he gets him a good wife and a godly family and a good father-in-law, and they're all sheep keepers. And as Moses is shepherding his father-in-law's flock, that's the moment that God calls him to rescue his people, God's flock. And if you're paying attention in Exodus, here's what you'll notice. It's Moses' staff, right? His shepherding staff that God uses as the tool to persuade the people that God, the chief shepherd, is the one who is in control here. And that Moses represents him. It's this shepherding staff that will be instrumental in delivering God's flock from danger. And that staff is always right there when God is about to do something miraculous to rescue his people. You tracking with the story? It gets better. And Moses does what he's called to do. He shepherds God's flock from slavery in Egypt all the way to their good pasture. He doesn't go in, but he's there. Well, as you keep going through the Old Testament, you continue to see God calling shepherds to lead his people. Probably the most famous of these men is King David. David, the king who is after God's own heart, is called out from doing what? Shepherding his father's flock when Samuel comes to to pick the king from Jesse's family. And it's David who does who writes probably the most famous psalm that we all know, Christian and hot, Psalm 23. And it's in that psalm that David reminds us, like Jacob did, that God really is the true shepherd. We're getting these echoes. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David is God's favored king because as the shepherd appointed to lead God's people, David follows God's ways. A good shepherd king provides for God's people like God does and he cares for them and he leads them and points them to God's holiness and his goodness. That'd be the last of the good shepherd kings because after David, his son Solomon takes the throne and he's wise and he's gifted by God, but he's selfish and he disobeys God and the kingdom is split in two. Now there's a northern kingdom of Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And as you work your way through First and Second Kings, through the history of God's people, you'll notice this one really bright truth. When God's shepherd kings lead well, the people flourish. And when they lead God's flock astray, the people suffer. Israel and Judah were only ever as good as the shepherds who led them, and mostly they just led them astray. So there comes a point in the story of God's people where God's patience with these shepherd kings just runs out. He called on these under-shepherds to lead his people, his flock, but over and over again, the kings and their appointed men and the priests, they abused the people, they led them astray, they burdened them, they took advantage of them. And so the prophets have something to say about this, don't they? Ezekiel, speaking on behalf of God, prophesies against these Shepherd kings, these under-shepherds. Look at Ezekiel 34 with me, and you will want to turn there. 
We're going to be there for a minute. Ezekiel chapter 34, beginning in verse 2. So this is Ezekiel speaking on behalf of God against the shepherds who are over God's people. He says, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened The sick you have not healed. The injured you have not bound up. The strayed you have not brought back. The lost you have not sought. And with force and harshness you have ruled them. Not shepherded them, but ruled them. So they're scattered. Because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. It's the situation that Ezekiel is revealing to God's people that they're in. And here's where it turns. This is where the story of redemption turns from bad news to good news. This is one of the great Pivots from the old covenant to the new covenant. And and Nolly read for us this beautiful good news for us. What is God going to do about this lack of a shepherd? Ezekiel 34, 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. This is our God. The, The good shepherd is going to go get them himself. He's going to rescue his own people. He's going to call out to the mountaintops and the high hills and his sheep will hear his voice and he'll gather them into safety. But that's that's not where it stops. Look down at, at 3423. This is perfect. It says, I will set up over them One shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now now David's dead. Right? I mean, we talked about him. He's long ago dead. Many, many generations ago, dead. Hundreds of years ago, he's been buried. So is God going to raise up David and there's going to be a, a zombie king? A zombie shepherd? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the promised one from David's line, the the one God told David would reign for eternity. He's talking about the Messiah. He's, He's talking about the Christ. The Christ will be both God, the shepherd who came for his own sheep, the one who says, I, I myself will shepherd them, and he will be the promised king from David's line. It's both. He's both. See how spectacular this promise is? Now read Ezekiel. And don't ask me what the rest of it means. 
The great shepherd king will be God himself. So, so when we get to the Gospels, fast forward. We get to the Gospels. And Jesus, the Messiah, he's, he's eating and he's drinking. He's spending time with all the, the undesirables. And the Pharisees and the scribes come to him and say, Look, he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so what does Jesus do? He tells them the parable of the one sheep and the ninety-nine. And he tells them that any shepherd worth their salt will leave the 99 and go after the one. What's Jesus saying when he tells those scribes and Pharisees that parable? He's saying, you were supposed to be doing this. You were supposed to be seeking out those who had lost their way. But because you wouldn't, God himself has resolved to shepherd them. And he's saying that through his actions, he's that shepherd. He's the one who eats with the lost, who feeds the lost, who shepherds the lost. And all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is bringing back those lost sheep of Israel. He's healing the sick and he's binding up the injured just like Ezekiel said he would. And he even feeds them, doesn't he? With me at Mark 6. In Mark 6, when Jesus is trying to get some rest and the crowds are following them around and he sees them, look what Mark tells us is going on. Mark 6, verse 34. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them many things. That's straight out of Ezekiel, isn't it? Sheep without a shepherd. And so what does Jesus do for these lost sheep? He teaches them. He sees that they're like sheep without a shepherd, and so he begins to teach them many things. Teaching is the way that God shepherds his flock. He shepherds through his word. And then almost as if he wants to reiterate that the shepherds, he as the shepherd has just spiritually fed these sheep. Do you know what he does right there on that shore? If you keep reading in Mark 6, you see that Jesus feeds 5,000 people bread and fish from five loaves and two fish. And then they have 12 baskets left over. One for each tribe. Jesus is God the shepherd who has come to care for and feed his flock. Well, in John's gospel, all of this is brought to a point. In John chapter 10, there's no parables here. There's no miracles necessary to see what's going on. Jesus just says it in plain language. John chapter 10, verses 11 through 16. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Well, there you go. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, he sees the wolf coming and he leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. There's the scattered sheep. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. He's showing ownership. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. 
I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. So who owns these sheep? God does, right? So Ezekiel told us, God owns them. They're his. And so the shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, he's saying, they're mine. And I will do anything to protect them. I'll fight the wolves. I'll gather my sheep. I will protect them. I'll even lay down my life for them so that they can live. But I don't want you to miss this before we move on to the next section. How is it that the sheep know the good shepherd? Because this is important. It's through his voice. The sheep know the voice of their shepherd. It's through Jesus speaking through his word that God's people hear him and say, I know that guy. That's my shepherd. That's my savior. That's my God. It's like the way a newborn baby comes out and recognizes the voice of her mother. Isn't it? If you hear the word of God and it excites you and it motivates you, you're encouraged by it. If it's life-giving to you, it's because you're one of his sheep. And he's your shepherd. You heard his voice and you were brought into his flock. But if you, if you hear the word of God and every bit of you wants to, to argue with it or to fix it or to ignore it or explain it away, it's because you're not one of his sheep. It's my prayer that you would be. It's our prayer as a church that the Spirit would give you the ears that you need to hear the shepherd's voice. Well, this shepherd king, the incarnate God, who promised to come and who did come, it turns out that laying down his life for the sheep is exactly what he has to do, isn't it? The offspring of the serpent again kills the shepherd. The offspring of the woman. But this time, the shepherd's death is the sacrifice that is pleasing to God. And so the good shepherd is resurrected. Well, after he's resurrected and before he ascends into heaven, he meets with his disciples, these 12 men that he's been training for shepherd work. And, and it's in one of these meetings, shortly after Jesus, or shortly before Jesus ascends into heaven, that we see this interaction between Jesus and these disciples. Look at John 21. With me, John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, 
You used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show him by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. And Peter does just what Jesus asked, doesn't he? In fact, it's just a few weeks later. There's Peter on Pentecost, full of the Spirit of God, and he's preaching. He's feeding God's flock. He's feeding God's people with the only thing that he has, the Word of God. The good news of Christ. And those whom God was calling through Peter hear the voice of their shepherd, and they repent, and they're baptized, and they're welcomed into the flock. And as you work your way through Acts, you'll find this happening over and over again. Peter and Paul and the other apostles do what they've been sent to do. They cry out God's word. And God, God's people hear the word and they're gathered into the flock. The church grows. And as lots of flocks are gathered in all over the known world, they are given leaders under shepherds to care for them. The Bible calls these men Elders. We see this clearly toward the end of Acts. In Acts 20, Paul is at the end of what we call his third missionary journey. He's planted churches all over the Roman Empire, and now the Spirit is leading Paul back to Jerusalem. And from there, he'll be arrested and tried and sent to Rome to stand before Caesar. Eventually, he will be killed for his faith. Jesus' prophecy will, will be lived out. But before he goes through all that, he knows he has to talk face to face to one of his most beloved churches, this church in Ephesus. Well, Luke, the writer of Acts, tells us that Paul arranged for the elders of the Ephesian church to meet him in Miletus for this face to face farewell address. I'm not going to read you Paul's entire speech to these elders, but look at what he tells them in Acts 20, verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God or to shepherd the church of God is the word used, which he obtained with his own blood, just like we sang in the church's one foundation. But most of your translations do say that, that Paul told these elders to shepherd the church of God. The, the word is the same there as the one we saw in First Peter at the very beginning. Poimino, to, to care for, to guide, to, to shepherd. And Paul is telling these elders, he won't be back. Paul, Paul's not going to come back to Ephesus. He's not going to be there to help them anymore. He's never going to see his, his beloved church again, and so he won't be able to shepherd them. And the elders have to do it. They have to be the ones to feed and care for their flock, to protect them from danger. He's saying, you're the shepherds now. So you see the shepherding role go from Jesus to the apostles to the elders of the churches. And and Paul reminds them to shepherd the flock of God that is among them. It's God's flock. God purchased his people with his own blood. That's a huge theological statement. Isn't it? 
This is a really big truth. This is one of those verses that, that we show Jehovah's Witnesses and Muslims and say, look, Jesus is God. God shed his blood. But it's more than that for these elders. These elders already trust in Christ's divinity. Paul's not trying to prove Christ's divinity to them. What Paul is doing here is setting a weight on their shoulders. He's saying this church that the Spirit has appointed you over, it's precious to God. So precious, in fact, that Jesus, the Good Shepherd, shed his blood for this church to save her from destruction. Christ died for this church, so take good care of it. She's worth it, is what he's telling him. The church is worth God's own blood. Her redemption is costly. And so by, by consequence, shepherding such a church will cost you, is what he's telling them. It will cost you your pride. It will cost you your comfort. It may cost you your life. But it's worth God's blood. So be willing to give your own. That's what Paul tells the elders of this church in Ephesus. But then look what Paul tells the rest of the church in Ephesus. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, he tells the church, Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. He told the elders to shepherd the church, and then he tells the church that Jesus Christ has given them shepherds and teachers to equip them, to prepare them to do ministry to build them up in maturity in Christ. He's telling the elders to shepherd and he tells them what that means and then he tells the church to be willing to be shepherded. Because that's how God has designed the church to carry out his mission. So then we get to 1 Peter 5 where we started. That passage we read earlier. And we learn more about these Shepherds. There's actually a lot to learn about these shepherds in the New Testament. That's why the next two weeks will be Pastor Saunders' responsibility to walk you through those. But this is what Peter says. He says, So I exhort the elders among you, and he's talking to several different churches in what's called Asia Minor. He's talking to them, and he says, I exhort the elders among you, among all of your churches. And then Peter says he's a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. He tells them just what Paul said to the Ephesian elders, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. Do you see how it's just so consistent through Scripture? And then, then Peter tells them this, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Back at the end of John, the chief shepherd called Peter to feed his sheep. Now Peter is telling the elders of these churches, he's writing to, to shepherd the flock of God, basically feed Jesus' sheep. And here's what that looks like. God's sheep are fed by God's word. So under shepherds primarily are just deliverers of God's word. That's all we do. Remember how Jesus said his sheep hear his voice? Jesus knows his own and they know him and they know him by his voice. Under shepherds are to speak that voice 
to the sheep. Not their voice, not my voice. I'm not to get up here and tell you about my family and my ideas and the stories from the week. I'm not here to entertain you. If I or another elder or another pastor is to get up here week after week, we're simply to speak to you the word of God. A pastor's authority doesn't come from his training, doesn't come from his education or his title, doesn't come from the state, doesn't come from his ordination, it doesn't come from the domination or from the strength of his personality. A pastor's authority is derived from his role in communicating God's word to the flock. That's it. Whether it be from the pulpit or in a classroom, the pastors of the church have authority among God's flock only because God's word has authority. You see that connection? Shepherd's voice. So if God's word ceases to be the authority in a church, then there is no longer any God any God-ordained authority in that church. In the same way, if a pastor ceases to preach the word of God, he ceases to shepherd. And so he ceases to be a pastor. The title is totally dependent on the responsibility. To pastor means to shepherd. So if I stop preaching God's word, I'm not pastoring you. You should fire me. If I start talking politics, or if I start telling you stories, or giving you moral lessons, or just get up here and give you a string of jokes, or I start talking about movies instead of proclaiming God's word, I'm not doing what the Spirit has appointed me to do. And so you need to get rid of me. And you need to find someone who will do what the Spirit says to do. Someone who will feed you God's word. An elder is a pastor, and a pastor is a shepherd, and a shepherd is an under-shepherd of Christ. We're called to feed the flock that Christ died to save. And because it's Christ's flock, this is a temporary role. Church's under-shepherds help keep his flock safe. By the power of the Spirit working through Christ's word, we preach and teach and shepherd, helping, hopefully, to strengthen Christ's sheep, to nourish them. We're to feed you with the word so that sin no longer tastes sweet, so that the lusts of the world are no longer rewarding, so that one day when you have persevered, when your faith has been shaped and tested and sharpened and you make it, all the way to the end, then you will see the chief shepherd face to face. That's the story of the multitude who meet Christ after suffering for his name. And we see these men and women in Revelation chapter 7. Revelation seven thirteen through 17 says this. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. 
They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Friends, this is our Savior. The Lamb who was slain will be our forever shepherd. And for a little while, for now, in His good and perfect plan, He has called upon men and by His Spirit gifted them with the ability to teach and understand His Word. And He's given these men to the church to serve as His under-shepherds, pointing to that day. This is God's design. The model of the shepherd leading His sheep is as old as humanity, isn't it? All the way back to Genesis. But because of Christ's work on the cross, this model has been redeemed, it's been made new for us. This is a design that has been redeemed for Christ's glory. And so this is the design that God is using to build up his church, as Paul told us in Ephesians. This is it. Under shepherds, speaking the words of the chief shepherd, and so guiding and protecting the shepherd's flock, the chief shepherd's flock. And all we can do in response is thank him and do what he asked Peter to do. Follow him. Amen? Let's pray.